just a few short verses and just a, a conversation, a couple of questions, a couple of answers, and a response. But I would argue um, one of the most important moments in this story so far. There's a couple, a couple clues to that. The one is, as Luke relates his accounts in his Gospels, remember when we talked in the very introduction how he has access to the eyewitnesses, he also has access to the many accounts that have already been written and put out there. Oftentimes when Luke is writing his account, you can see that he's beginning with Mark. Um, there are some passages that are almost verbatim with Mark. But then you see times where he will go in and he will say things a different way or he will bring in some other details, probably details that he got in his interaction with the eyewitnesses. And he will change the language of Mark a bit, usually to bring out a point of emphasis that is particular to him, what he wants us to see, what he wants us to understand about what's happened. And this is one of those accounts that begins in a way different than the way that this account appears in the Gospel of Mark. It begins with Jesus praying. Now, if we've been paying attention to what Luke has been doing along the way through this narrative, we would anticipate that this is pointing to something important that's about to happen. Consider a past few instances. Um, at Jesus' baptism, Luke says, while well, the other Gospels do not, that while Jesus was praying... This is what happened. In another instance, he prayed before choosing the twelve. He went up and prayed all night, and then he comes down and he chooses the twelve as his disciples. And so if we've looked at the past pattern, and this pattern will continue through the Gospel of Luke moving forward, and it will continue into volume two of the book of Acts. Our attention has been grabbed here, or should have been. Something big is about to happen, and something big, it seems again, that will involve the twelve, the disciples, Luke says, were with him. So this moment of great importance, this moment of great importance begins with a question. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, I think I've probably brought this to the surface sufficiently in the past, so that even without this prayerful introduction, we would know that this is important to the development of the story that Luke is telling. The story has actually been building in many ways to this moment. This question. The crowds have been asking this question. Who is this? Who does this? Who is this? Who does that? The religious leaders have been asking the question. Who is this who says he can even forgive sins? The disciples have just asked it. Who is this who tells the wind and the waves what to do? And they listen. And most recently, Herod has just asked this same question. Who is this? And now, with all of this discussion and all of this data coming in and all of this processing that's going on in people's minds, Jesus himself asks this question, bringing the development of this question to kind of a climax. But starting toward an answer by degrees. First of all, with respect to the popular opinion, which the disciples, remember, 
have just recently come back from being spread out through the land of Israel, ministering. And so they would come back with probably um, a good idea of what the people in general were saying and thinking about who Jesus was and what the answer to this question was. Where is the crowd? Where are the people right now on this question? Well, this sounds familiar. And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Of course, these were the same answers that we have just recently, right before the feeding of the 5,000, the same answers that had been perplexing Herod as he was trying to sort through all of this. Now, each one of these, and we mentioned briefly last time, each one of these has some grounds. There's some reason for making these connections between Jesus and these, and these personages that are put forward. Um, we see that Jesus' ministry was very much like John the Baptist's. Their message was the same. They proclaimed the kingdom of God. They proclaimed the forgiveness of sins. Um, we see, and Luke is, is taking more pains than the other gospel writers to make this connection, we see how similar Jesus' ministry is to Elijah's um, in the, the wonder-working and the, and the prophesying and the revealing, but also the reaching out to the Gentiles as Jesus himself makes that tie in his first couple of sermons that he's going to be doing this. And we also have the additional information that Elijah is supposed to come again. Two weeks ago, we read of the story of Elijah going into heaven and the prophecy from Malachi that said before that final day of the Lord came, Elijah would come again. And again, as far as the general connection with the prophets, the last opinion that's put out there, one of the prophets has arisen. I mean, his ministry has really demonstrated this great prophetic character. If you look at the patterns of the things the prophets did and the things that Jesus did, you can see that he fits in this category. So the people have seen Jesus' tendency to reveal, like a prophet, and to heal. And they've put him in this class. A great prophet, they said earlier, has arisen among us. This revealing and this healing ministry. But this is only Jesus' opening question. And he follows up with a question not about what the crowds think, but about what the disciples themselves think, indicating that crowds, in their answer, have not gone far enough. It's not wrong that he's a prophet. It's not wrong that he's following in this same tradition of men that God had sent to, to reveal his truth and to heal his people, but it's not enough. And so he poses this question to the disciples as well. And let me remind you, again, the most important question that can possibly be asked, the most important question for everyone, including everyone in this room, to answer, and to answer with certainty. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, there's more to this. It seems, to say, it seems uh, by his asking this question, there's more to this which the disciples might have some insight into that the crowds perhaps had not. Why might the disciples have had some better and more thorough and deeper understanding of the identity of Jesus? Well, what they had learned from themselves through their experience. Remember when he called them, he called them to be with him. The disciples have seen some of Jesus' works that nobody else had seen, the calming of the storm being one of those. And again, a smaller group had seen miracles that even the rest of the apostles the twelve hadn't seen the raising of Jairus' daughter. These have been the ones who have been closest to his teaching, closest to his works. 
And not only have they been close in observation, but now, having just come back from a journey, they've come back from a journey in which they have shared in and exercised the same power and authority that Jesus had. Jesus gave it to them. Cast out demons, heal the sick, proclaim the gospel, he said. So these are those with a very up-close, personal, experiential encounter with Christ. And they've been chosen for this purpose, to make known who he is. And so now this story has brought them to this point of decision, this point of confession, this point of testing, where Jesus is now saying, do you get it yet? And acting as their spokesperson, Peter answers the question on behalf of all of them and says, you are the Christ of God. Now, again, I say this all the time about religious language and theological language that we use, used to the point that we no longer think about what it actually means. Um, maybe you've encountered people that say, Christ, that's Jesus' last name, right? Well, no, that's not what it is. What does the Christ mean? What is Peter saying here? Well, the Greek word um, just means the anointed. Um, if you remember, it seems like ages ago when we had Sunday school, when we were walking through the prophet, priest, and kingly ministry of Christ. We talked about each of those offices having that in common, that they were anointed by God, a demonstration of God's choice of them, a demonstration of God's giving them the spirit to fulfill the office that he's calling them to fulfill. But Peter doesn't just say, you're a Christ, you're an anointed one. His answer is, you are the Christ. And not only that, you are the Christ of God. Now, what do we as readers know about this title so far? And it's interesting as you read through the apostles' experience. I mean, we know everything that happened in the narrative and the uh, infancy narratives. We don't know that they know any of that. Uh, We know how Luke himself is framing things and saying things, and they're not hearing Luke's narration. So what we're watching here is them experiencing and learning and confessing things that we have already known as readers of this gospel from the beginning. And this is a title that we know from the beginning Luke has attributed to Christ. You think of the angels as they appear to the shepherds at Christ's birth. They said as born, um, that, that Christ was, was born to you, one who is Savior, Christ the Lord. When we read Luke's account of Simeon, as Simeon comes to bless Jesus in the temple. Why does he come? Well, because it had been revealed to him that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. At which point he sees Jesus and says, Now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace. We've also seen Luke tell us that one of the reasons Jesus is silencing the demons when they begin to speak is that they know he's the Christ. And so we as readers of the story so far, we know this is the Christ of God. And we know something of what that would have meant and what the content of that idea and that title was. We've seen that in Gabriel's announcement to Mary of who Jesus would be and what he would do. That the Lord God would give to him the throne of his father, David, and he would reign over the house of Jacob and of his kingdom there would be no end. We know this. We've read this. But this is not something in the story itself that has been directly proclaimed by Christ himself. 
As a matter of fact, as we've already mentioned, every time he sees there's a danger of that fact being stated, he silences whoever is about to say it. How then, in the course of this story, has Peter come to this conviction? How has Peter come to this understanding that this is a title that belongs to this one with whom he's been ministering? Well, a number of clues that we think Peter probably would have been privy to as we read along as well. Think of even Jesus' first sermon that's recorded um, where he's preaching from Isaiah 61. The first thing he says is, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Again, there's that verb. He has been anointed. The, the Hebrew for this is the Messiah. He is a Messiah. And then Jesus goes on. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, bring good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, opening the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Peter and the rest of the apostles have been for almost three years now seeing Jesus do all of these things. Things that he was anointed to do. But in addition to these, and again, these would be more along the lines of the revealing ministry and the healing ministry, the prophetic ministry of Christ. They've been seeing these things. But in addition to these things, they've now begun to see some things that are breaking past the boundaries of your normal prophetic expectation. Which of the prophets ever told the weather what to do? Which of the prophets ever commanded an entire legion of demons and was obeyed instantly? And the disciples' own experience, they have seen Christ not just doing prophetic things, but doing kingly, powerful, authoritative things. And we could say that it would be a somewhat natural thing for them to think about all the other passages that talked about an anointed one. We heard one of them in Psalm 2 this morning for our first scripture reading. But even leading into that, the first use of this anointing with respect to a king, as Saul was being anointed, 1 Samuel 10, 1 says, Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be a prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord? And listen, you will save them from the hand of of their surrounding enemies. We get this picture of the king, the king being anointed, the purpose of that anointing being so that he can rule and so that he can rescue, save his people from all their enemies. This continues throughout the Old Testament scripture, Psalm 132. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The idea in general of an anointed one starts taking more and more of a focus on a particular person who's going to be the anointed one. The anointed one of God who's not just going to prophetically reveal, who's not just going to preparatorily heal, but is going to rule and he's going to rescue his people. We read about this most explicitly in Psalm 2. Kings of the earth taking counsel together, gathering against God, against his plan, against his anointed, the anointed of the Lord. And God laughing and saying, I've set my king on my holy hill and announcing that one day all of the nations will be his possession. 
And this is the man that is standing in front of Peter now asking Peter this question. And Peter has been looking at the scriptures and Peter has been looking at what Jesus is doing and says, I'm recognizing you're not just the one anointed to reveal and heal. You're the one anointed to rule and to rescue. The one who would save his people from all dangers. We don't know a whole, whole lot about the specifics of the messianic expectation. What exactly were the people expecting Messiah to be and to do? We get hints here and there. But one of the things that we see is that there was a tendency to fragment these pictures of Messiah we have. Well, over here we have Qumran, um, Dead Sea Scrolls place. They talk about um, that looks like there's a, a, a Messiah who's supposed to do priestly stuff. I mean, there must be one Messiah. And it looks like there's a Messiah who's supposed to do kingly stuff as well. Maybe, maybe this is another Messiah. And you see them having troubles figuring out who's who and how these go together. Well, what Peter has just done is made this connection between two of the anointeds in Scripture. The one who heals and the one who reveals is the very same one who rules and rescues. And this is huge. This, as I've said... This is the moment to which this story has been building thus far. Now, what would, what would you expect at this moment? This great achievement, this final understanding. Have we arrived? Do we now march into Jerusalem? Do we start the celebration? Do we start the ruling? Do we start the rescuing? Maybe that's what we would expect if we're following what Luke's doing. But instead, we get a gut punch. Something shocking. Something startling. Well, because there's something else that's extremely important in this moment. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. The language is almost of of a rebuke. You know how your parents will sometimes holler at you for something you haven't done yet, but you know, okay, I'm not supposed to do that. This is a very, very strong rebuke. Do not tell anyone this. Now, we've seen them do this in the past particularly with demons, as we've said, who knew him to be the Christ. But is this the moment for that? I mean, it seems like such a a sudden shock. These aren't demons, these are the disciples. Why would such stupendous news need to be kept secret by them? Well, one of the things that we do pick up generally in the public anticipation of what the Messiah would be is that there was a strong military political expectation with this. So perhaps we could say that Jesus is telling the disciples, keep this quiet because the misunderstanding out there is so bad that if you, if you reveal this, it will cause trouble, It'll especially cause trouble with the Roman government. And I suppose there could be something to that. But as we'll see going forward, there's a bigger reason that the disciples themselves are not to reveal his identity as the Christ. And that is because they don't actually yet know what it means. They themselves are still misunderstanding. We have been brought to an extremely important place in this Revelation of who Jesus is and the disciples grabbing onto it, but we're not to the end yet. And the end is crucial 
because there's this massive and there's this critical piece that they have still not put in their puzzle and in their picture. And with these, with these verses, part two of their lesson, part two of this revelation begins, and it is a bitter pill to swallow. Jesus lays it on them plainly, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and the third day be raised. Peter has matched two parts of the messianic picture. The same one who has come to reveal and heal in a prophetic manner is the one who has come to rule and to rescue in a kingly manner. But there's a third piece and that is that this same one has also come to suffer and to die. And it's going to take the disciples some time to get this. In fact, it won't be until it's all over that they even begin to comprehend it. At this point, Luke's story changes. The key of Luke's story changes from major to minor. This has, been a, this has been a story of celebration after celebration as Jesus has gone forward and healed this person and raised that person and rescued that person. It's been this continuous party. And now Jesus says that party is over. And Luke's story from this point will just be the unfolding of what Jesus says right here. Some of these themes that we saw a very, very shadowy form. Remember, we get sort of a negative vibe from Simeon as he says to Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul as well. And we think, well, what's, what's that about? We see a little bit of opposition from the leadership, but we don't see anything as stark as this. We don't see anything as sad as this. And not only sad, but unbelievable incomprehensible especially given the second piece that has just fallen into place for them this is the Messiah this is the anointed one this is God's ruler par excellence this is the righteous one why would God ever allow something terrible like this happen to his perfectly righteous son not only that but Messiah Messiah was the one who not only would he protect his people from all of their enemies, God would always protect him from their enemies. He would not even strike his foot against a stone and stumble. He had God's perfect protection. And not only that, but what have they seen him do? This is the one that they've already seen tell legions of demons to enter pigs and be obeyed. This is one that they've seen tell the weather what to do and be instantly obeyed. What power was there out there that was going to be able to bring him to this end? Especially, we can't conceive of something like this being pulled off by the religious leadership. But what Jesus says here isn't going to happen because he's finally going to come up against some power that's greater than he's able to handle. 
it wasn't going to happen because of some unfortunate accident where he wasn't looking and someone got him. It was going to happen because it was necessary. It had to happen. As he says, the Son of Man must suffer all of these things. Necessary? Necessary for what? Necessary precisely in order to fulfill his second messianic role of ruler and especially of rescuer. Why? Why suffer and die to rescue? We've seen what he can do. Why not just use the power like he's been using it? What he did with the demons, what he did with disease, what he did with death itself. He spoke a word and that was the end of it. Why can't he just free his people and rescue them in the same way he's done it so far? To answer this question, we have to first go back again to the beginning of the story and read some things that were clearly articulated at the beginning. But again, like his identity as Christ had been forgotten in the space of his birth and the beginning of his ministry, and now we're learning afresh. Because as we look back to the infancy narratives and we look to the prophecies made surrounding his birth and the prophecies made surrounding the birth of John the Baptist and what both of these men would do, we're reminded that what Messiah, what the anointed of David's house, the anointed of the Lord had come to do ultimately was to save his people from their sins. That's what it was announced in the events surrounding his birth that he had come to do. Save him. This is what we begin, save them. This is what begin, we begin to see him say and talk about and do as he's forgiving sins in the course of his ministry and really saying, everything you see me do, giving the lame the ability to walk, this is just a picture of something else that has to be done. Sin has to be forgiven. Zechariah's prophecies, the angel's word, all point to this. Okay, so we've got another danger. In addition to disease and to death and to demons and to weather and all of these things, we have another danger. We have another obstacle to our salvation. Why, again, can we still not just be rescued in the same way that he's been doing his rescuing? Why not just say the word and overthrow this enemy and save us from it? Well, that's because with sin, the source of our danger is not some outside force. It's not some foreign enemy. The source of our danger and our sin is God himself. Remember John's preaching. Remember the opening to this entire ministry. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What God's people have needed saved from most acutely from the very beginning of this entire story has not been demons out there or disease out there or death out there. It's been the wrath of God that's coming because of their sin. God's justice 
cannot just be set aside and still be justice. More than that, and this is even kind of insane to think of it or say it this way, God's justice can't be overthrown by God's power that Jesus is exercising. Saving God's people from God's wrath is not something that can be done by brute force. What then can be done? What hope is there? How can Messiah do what Messiah is supposed to do if this is the situation? Only by satisfying that justice. And how can that be done? There's only one way. God's justice can be satisfied only when someone pays the penalty. And God's justice and his just wrath against someone else can only be satisfied and paid if someone else takes that penalty. Who can do that? Well, first of all, someone with the righteousness of God himself. And secondly, who can endure that as one with the power of God himself. This is why critical to this picture as we've been painting it along the way and see Luke painting it, critical is Christ's identity as the son of God acting on God's behalf, acting with God's power, acting as God himself. And this is why, this is why that if he is going to truly rescue his people and rescue them from their most significant problem, if he is truly to be the Messiah, truly to be the Christ, he has to suffer and he has to die before he rises to rule and to rescue. This is what the disciples have to grasp before they can begin proclaiming in public that Jesus is Christ and what it means. To avoid, first of all, giving the wrong impression that we're announcing a Messiah who's only come to make you healthy and to make you comfortable. But in addition to avoiding giving the wrong impression, to avoid missing what really is the entire point. And that is that he came to rescue us from the source of all other woes that we experience. He came to rescue us from the wrath of God that was due to us because of our sin. This is what the disciples have to get before they preach. This is what we have to get if we're truly going to be rescued by Messiah. We have to get that our biggest problem is God's perfectly just wrath against us because of our sin. And we have to see that Jesus of Nazareth is the only possible solution to that problem. And we have to put our trust in his person as the divine, holy, anointed son of God and in this work that he's just announced, the work of his suffering and his death and his resurrection. And if we grasp that, if we trust him, he will save us. One last thing. 
this necessity of Christ's suffering and death, Christ's willingness to go through it, are what we must get, are what we must grasp if we would truly know what it is that God wants us to know about himself. When Jesus said that it was necessary, that the Son of Man must do these things, one thing that's perfectly clear is that he wasn't saying, I don't have a choice. At several points in the gospel, Jesus makes it perfectly clear that he does have a choice. At the very end, he said, don't you know, I could right now ask my father. He would send legions of angels, and this would be over. The death of Christ wasn't necessary in some fatalistic sense. The death of Christ was only necessary if he wanted to save us. And he did. And the word we use to describe that is love. And it's one thing for the superhero to save the people by the use of his superpower. That's impressive. But it's an entirely different thing for the superhero to save his people by the sacrifice of his own comfort and of his own life. The Messiah of God, the anointed of God, is a rescuer who rescues because he loves you. He loves you to the point that he is willing to suffer what you should have suffered so that you won't have to. This is how serious Messiah is about your safety, your rescue, your eternal well-being. This is the way that the one true Messiah has gone about rescuing us as his people. And by doing so, what do we see? Not just the glory of his raw power. We see the glory of his bottomless, unending, unfailing love. That's why it's so important what Jesus has just told us and just clearly revealed to the disciples why it's so important to us to follow the rest of Luke's story to see how this unfolds. Let us pray.